If you wouldn't mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're continuing in Acts, and we'll be saying that for the next two years. <laughs> Chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 4. It's still funny later, like a minute later. It's still funny. It's all good. (laughs) Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So we are continuing in Acts. But it's uh, through chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9, we're kind of doing something a little different. We are looking at four key figures. And so last week, We did not talk about this, but the week before that, we talked about Stephen. And you might notice tonight we're skipping a little bit of the narrative, and we'll come back to it. Don't worry, we'll we'll, we'll get it all in there. Uh, But we're skipping a little bit of that to to go to the next character that's brought up. And it's not Saul, like you see in the beginning. We're actually going to be talking about Philip. We'll be spending so much time with Saul of Tarsus that, uh, I was going to say you'll get tired of him, but you won't. Uh, we're spending a lot of the latter half of Acts, of course, with Saul. And, uh, but tonight we're going to be talking about Philip. Philip is, I think, one of the more interesting characters in Acts for a number of reasons. And so tonight we're going to be looking at him and more so him, his character, who he is, and how we can learn from him, uh, particularly as we, we look through this, through this story. And there's... Um, there's some interesting things that we're going to be handling tonight, but tomorrow, by tomorrow I mean next week, we're going to be looking at the last part of chapter 8, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. And so, 
Uh, if it seems like we're not getting the whole story, we're not. We'll spend another week with, with Philip. But I'm actually going to go someplace that you probably would not have guessed that we are going to go. Matthew chapter 13. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to set the table before we eat. I promise you, even as we go through here and you think that I have gone off the rails, I have not. You'll see. Matthew 13. This should be a a, a pretty familiar story, passage, if you've uh, spent some time in the church. If you've grown up in the church, this is probably one of those stories that you've heard several times and have done crafts with, you know. But let's look at chapter 13 here, verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. The point of this, of course, is there's a lot of people there. Verse 3. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they immediately sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So this passage here, again, should be pretty familiar to us, and the point of the story Something that we look back on and we think, okay, we, we, normally we've sort of walked through this before to know the seeds represent the word of God. The soils represent different types of people. Even the disciples at this point weren't quite picking that up, so later on he actually explains it. Jesus actually goes through and tells them what it means. So looking at verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom that does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. See that word sown. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. So this is the explanation for what's going on. And this would have been really recognized by people who lived in an agrarian culture. And one thing that we also pick up the idea on is the sowing. This is not a very efficient way of 
planting. We don't follow this type of planting. This is, however, very common at the time that you would throw the seeds out and they would go down into the soil. And there you go. So this idea of sowing is the scattering of, of the seed. This was a, probably a pretty vivid picture for them. For us, it doesn't look like that. But for them, they would have understood it pretty readily. There's one other story that Jesus tells in this chapter that we should look at, and it's immediately following this. Look at verse 24. He put another parable before them. Obviously, this is Jesus. Saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Again, we're sowing seeds. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Your translation may say tares, but those are weeds. They're not the intended plant to be grown there. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds appeared also, I'm sorry, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to them, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Meaning the weeds, gather them out. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. In the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. An explanation is given of this parable as well in verse 30, 36. It says, Then he left the crowds and went to his own house, or to the house, I should say. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. They didn't get this one. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus. The fields, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Uh, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather, the, uh, gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace uh, in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father who has ears, let him hear. So this is, again, sowing, very familiar. This is something that they would, have, they would have known. This story, however, talks about in a field where there is good wheat growing, there are also those growing among that are the weeds. They are not the intended. And so Jesus gives the explanation. The ones that are, that are good, the wheat, those are the righteous. The weeds are the unrighteous, essentially. So Jesus says, don't rip, don't rip out the weeds right now. You'll disturb the wheat, so we'll just wait till the end, which is judgment. All right. Keep that all in mind. We're going to go to one other place before we get started. This is all the intro, by the way. Saw the intro. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. 
we have I, one of my favorite interactions that Jesus has. I, the, whole, the whole story is interesting to me. So they're, they're traveling and they go through the region of Samaria. The region of Samaria, in case you do not know or some of the details may have been lost along the way, the area of Samaria is not an area that the Jews would go through. And this goes all the way back in history to the, um, to the time of the Babylonians when they came in and they, they went through and they were taking families to Babylon, the ones that were left. Mind you, this is hundreds of years earlier. They stuck around and they began intermarrying and kind of just living their life there for, well, 70 years. And when they came back, you had a whole group of people who still may have identified with uh, being a Jew, but however, they were, they were mixed. And so you had varying different groups there who opposed the Jews returning. So since that time, moving forward, there was a division between the Jews, those who would call themselves faithful or at least have maintained their Jewishness, and the Samaritans, who were basically seen as those who were sort of syncretistic. That's the fancy word. Mixed would probably be the unfancy word. And so they saw them as not those to be trusted. Uh, they looked down upon them. They would call them names and vice versa. Samaritans, I would suppose, didn't really enjoy the Jews all that much, and you would imagine why. And they had different theological disputes, and so when Jesus is here, they travel through Samaria, which was already weird. Disciples go into town, and he ends up talking with a woman at a well, which again, very weird. Culturally, you didn't have a man who would then speak to a woman there in public like that. It is also weird that she is getting water in the middle of the day. There's a lot of weird things about this story, but I find it amazing that the Lord would orchestrate all these different things so that this woman ends up going to the well at just that right time when Jesus is by himself with, uh, with her at the well and they have this conversation. Jesus, we're not gonna read through this whole part here, but Jesus basically displays that he is a prophet by telling her things about herself that he wouldn't have known she then runs back to town and starts telling people, come and see this man who has told me everything about myself. They all go out to see Jesus. Um, the disciples come back and what has been going on? They missed a whole bunch. They say, hey, we went and got you food. That's what we went to go and do. Let's look real quick here at John chapter four. Look at verse 27. Just as his disciples came back, they marveled as he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? They, were, they learned, to, I think, to maybe not approach Jesus how they would everyone else. The woman left her water jar there, and she went away into town. Come and see, every, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? And they went down from town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has he uh, brought something with him to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
do you not say there is yet four months until, or uh, four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together for their, I'm sorry, for here. The saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You've entered into their labor. Verse 39, one last one. Many Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me everything I ever did. We'll pause there. So you have Jesus telling these parables about sowing. A couple different ones. And he goes to Samaria. That's not a then. This, this happened before. But then he's in Samaria and he talks to this woman. And all the goings on, he then refers to what's going on there. He says, look, look at how this field is ready for harvest. And you can see those themes kind of overlapping. We've got sowing. We've got uh, the fields growing, talking about reaping, and then you've got this, this field that Jesus looks out and says, they're ready for harvest. They're ready. Some will come and they'll plant and others will water and then others will reap, which Paul also links in on, in another letter that he writes. So now, with all of that, let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 8. Obviously, is following chapter 7. In chapter 7, you have Stephen who gives his testimony because of his preaching and his zeal. He is taken, physically taken, and he's actually martyred, which we will come back to and spend some time talking about that at a later time. But this was a huge event for the church. It was at that point, Stephen one of the deacons, and seemingly the head of those deacons, died for speaking the word. This was the first time we have recorded here that anyone other than the apostles were persecuted at that time. So this, this marks a, a, a turning, a change. If we look here at verse, verse one, it says, Paul approved of, the, of his execution, talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. I want to focus in on that word there, scattered. The reason I want to focus there is that is the same word used for the seeds in Matthew chapter 13. Scattered. Not scattered haphazardly, in our minds, not, not smashed and just brushed up. Nothing like that. This was an actual scattering on purpose. And I think that's really important to realize. We'll take a little side application here because I think we would look at persecution and say it is always evil, it is always bad, and never comes to any good. This actually sounds like this is thoroughly intentional that this persecution would be allowed so that they would be scattered like those seeds in the parable. One of those seeds is Philip. Verse four, 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaiming to them the Christ, the Messiah. Couple things. Philip sounds smart. If the Jews are persecuting them, why not go to a region where the, where the Jews won't go? So, smart. I'm going to travel there. Uh, he ends up going there, and what's also interesting is he goes there by himself. Well, at least that's how it's posted here. He, we know later on he has a family, which we'll talk about at the end. We don't know if he like went with his wife and kids. We don't know what that looks like, but it just says Philip went down there. But every other time that we've seen when Jesus sends someone out, he sends them out at least in pairs. Philip goes by himself. And he ends up going to Samaria. On the map, it's up to Samaria. But when he goes, he brings with him the gospel. Not just the gospel, he brings with himself the boldness to proclaim the gospel. So just like we talked about in weeks previous, there seems to be a cycle. God does something within his people. They go out. There's a reaction, and normally a reaction of some type of, um, you'll have something there, the gospel goes forward, and you'll also have something that opposes, and this persecution is obviously that which opposes. So we're starting the cycle out again. Philip goes, and he goes and he preaches the word. So God does something among the people there. Now, the reason we read from John 4, this really does feel like a fulfillment of what Jesus had said. He said, this area here, this is white for harvest, this is ready. He says, and some will sow, and others will water. Right, it talks about a fruitful reaping. When Philip heads down there, and he preaches, this is in the same region that Jesus went and preached. Jesus sowed in that area, and it looks like Philip is the one who waters and sees the increase, and you have a reaping. In the most positive sense, and I want to bring that up because this whole region here, which is a continuation of what we see Jesus telling the church to, to do. He told the apostles at his ascension that they would be his witnesses, which, by the way, is the word for martyr. That's what martyr means, to be a witness. That they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the outermost parts of the earth. This is that next step. Directly, Philip goes to Samaria and fulfills this thing that Jesus promised would take place. Not just at the Great Commission, but I think going back to Matthew 13. So imagine that. Matthew 13, we read through there. Jesus is telling us parables. In his mind, he may even be thinking, they're waiting for you, Philip. It's amazing that he would be the one to go and to do that. After Stephen was martyred, most likely Philip is the one that sort of steps up. And the only reason we think that is because of these events that take place here. He goes and he does what he is supposed to do. He is met, however, with opposition. Right? So there is a work to be done. It looks like the same work that Jesus had done. He went and he preached the kingdom. He's met with those who are demon-possessed. He 
exercises those demons, he does that spiritual work as well, and you actually have a group that comes together who then trust in him. So a continuation of that ministry that Jesus had accomplished in that region. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. Then we're introduced to a, another character, a side character. This is a side quest here. This is Simon. In some commentaries and writings, he's called Simon Magnus, which just means great. He talks several times about in that region, they considered him to be great. I did read some commentaries where they present him as a charlatan, that he's tricking them with magic tricks. I really don't know if that's what this is. For them to keep saying, or for Luke to keep writing this fact that he was great, he was considered great, and they called him great because of the power that he had. This doesn't sound like rabbit out of a hat, pigeon up a sleeve, pick a card. That, that doesn't sound like that. This sounds like actual legitimate power. Some kind. This may have been a region that was overcome with this type of power. And, you know, the, the idea and the concept of magic, I think we also sometimes connect that with illusion or something that's not real. But every spiritual interaction we seem to see in this chapter is real. This is the real deal. And this was a man who responded to power. Simon Magnus, Simon the Magician, he seemed to respond to power. So he sees Philip accomplishing these things and doing things that he couldn't do. A magician, and you know, even going to the Old Testament, you have the example of the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel, where King Saul goes to talk to this witch. And again, some of the commentaries will say, well, this is fake. I don't know. This doesn't seem fake. This seems real. It's just that every other instance where we see spiritual power exhibited from the enemy or for selflessness or selfishness, we see the power of God being greater. So you have Simon the magician here, well known in the region, all of a sudden recognizing this guy here who just showed up is preaching this message and has actual real power. Simon may have aligned himself with some of these spirits and drawing power from these spirits that Philip was expelling by the power of Jesus and sending them on their way. And so, of course, Simon responds. He responds to that power. Verse 13. I'll go to verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being, I'm sorry, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, so that's important, Simon believed, and after being baptized, also baptized, he continued with Philip, fellowship with a righteous man like that, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is kind of the fourth thing you see from Simon. So Simon believed, he was baptized, he marveled at what was going on. He was amazed, and he continued on with Philip. So these are, these are things, if we looked at anyone else, we'd look at him and say, yeah, he looks like a Christian. Looks like a follower of Jesus. Verse 
what Philip does here is then he calls for the apostles to come down. The apostles come down to see what is going on. The word has now extended there. There was one thing that had not happened yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't come. And I think this is important because what you see is the Lord expanding out this idea and this concept of the kingdom. It's now in Samaria. And Philip is there. Philip's just by himself. And so by calling the apostles and the apostles coming and the Holy Spirit coming, the point we shouldn't learn is that the Holy Spirit only comes from apostles. That's not the point. But the point is, is this amazing work that God has done is the same amazing work that had been happening in Jerusalem and the same amazing work that happening around the regions of Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, Judea, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. It was expanding. This was then in line with that. So by the apostles coming, the Holy Spirit coming when the apostles showed up, this is the same thing that's going on. So this is not Philip starting a brand new thing. That's not the Philip show or the Philip cult or fill it in. Very much Philip is saying this is the same thing and the apostles coming and the Holy Spirit coming when he came is acknowledging that, that this is a continuation of what God is doing. This is that next step. But when that happened, the Holy Spirit came, Simon, Simon doesn't receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon does what any magician would do. Seeing someone more powerful he goes and wants to learn. He wants that power. Not receiving it, he offers to pay for it. Which Peter says to him, you have no part of this. <laughs> Get on out of here. And you might look back on that to say, why didn't Philip know? Seemingly he's the one that preached to him. He's the one that baptized him. He's the one that had him around. I think what we see is that other parable, the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. Here's Simon. Philip couldn't necessarily decipher or really need to decipher whether it was true. If Simon made a confession, you just go with it. But the Holy Spirit knows. The Spirit knows. So Peter was able to identify that and call that out. But I would say that that was kind of a fulfillment of that as well, or at least is in line with those concepts. The fact that there would be someone who would be among them who wasn't actually saved, wasn't a part of what was going on. And so Philip is able to walk this way in order for the church to learn even more about what the Holy Spirit is doing what the intentions of the Lord is in those areas and regions, which is pretty amazing. The next thing, and this is the interaction we're going to talk about next week. In a different area, he meets up with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the church, again, expands in its scope. And we're going to concentrate on that next week. So what we see here, and what, what can we learn from from Philip. Philip, I think, I think you could say some different things about him. His faithfulness, you could say he was bold, right, to go someplace by himself to preach gospel. But he is led by the Spirit. He goes to a place other people probably wouldn't have gone. And he takes the gospel with him by himself. And he allows the Lord to use him in a region that the Lord had identified for him. 
The other side of this is that Philip is just a, a dude. He's just a guy. He's not one of the apostles. He, he has a Greek name. It's thought that he may not even actually be ethnically Jewish. He may be a Greek proselyte. But he goes, and he does what he's supposed to do, the thing that he's called to do. That had to, that had to take some courage. It's something else I think we can learn from Philip. We don't have anyone else recorded going with him, but it's where the Lord led him, so he went. That, that I, I do think is worth emulation for sure. Let's turn over to Acts 21. One last thing to really look at with Philip, and then we'll have some closing thoughts here. Acts 21, which eventually we will get to. At some point, we'll get there. But in Acts 21, this is sorry, Paul making his way back to Jerusalem from a journey. And as he travels... Let's look at verse 7 here. Acts 21, verse 7. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, he arrived at Ptolemyus. And, uh, and we greeted the brothers, that's obviously him and Luke, and stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip. Philip enters the story again later on. But notice what he's called here. Philip the what? Philip the evangelist. You know that there's no one else who's specifically identified as an evangelist in the New Testament? It's talked about conceptually, but he's the only one who's identified the evangelist. So they stayed with him, and it identifies him here. This is the Philip that we know, because it says that he's one of the seven. And they're talking about the seven deacons that were commissioned in Acts chapter 6. So we know it's him. It says that they stayed with him. Verse 9, this is another thing that I have not seen really highlighted, but it says here that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is the other thing that you don't really see a whole lot. We, we, we have discussed different individuals who are married. Peter is talked about as being married, but we don't hear about that next generation of believers from that initial group, that this first stepping out of the church, we don't hear much about that second generation, but here's Philip, identified as the evangelist, with four unwed daughters, I don't know why that's important, but I guess it is, uh, four unwed daughters who prophesy. It continued. So Philip, and what he had been called to do, that ministry continue to that next generation. We don't know anything about what they did or things like that, but we know that he had his children continue. And we don't really see that talked a whole lot about. Probably the closest we get is the Apostle Paul talking about Timothy, talking about Titus. But these were, these were men who he met, who, who came to know the Lord, who he was discipling in, in ministry and, and mentoring. This is not the same necessarily, but here you see Philip continuing. And I think that's worth noting that Philip, we don't really know much more that might have happened with Philip, but we know that he continued. 
And we know that he had such a reputation for being someone who spoke to unbelievers about Jesus that he was called the evangelist, which I think is pretty amazing. I think Philip is an important character to focus on because, like I stated before, Philip is just a dude. He's just a guy. He wasn't one of the apostles, but he was identified as one who was following after the Holy Spirit. He submitted to the Lord. And so he was identified and commissioned as a deacon. And he continued on. He had a ministry that the Lord used him to fulfill. Sounds like it took him some crazy places. Eventually ended up in Caesarea, which was not a Jewish area. So again, seems like he ended up where the gospel was needed, which is pretty amazing, and continuing a legacy. Philip goes to places where there's direct opposition to the kingdom. And he displays that there is really no contest between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven. And he lives it out. And he's a man who lived out that truth with his life. He actually went and did based on that belief. Looking at Ephesians chapter four, if you have your Bible, turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, let's look at verse 9. I'm going to start in verse 8. This is Paul writing. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, obviously talking about Jesus, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Look at verse 11. And he gave. So this is Jesus. This is part of his ministry to those who are on earth, his, his gifts. He says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want to highlight verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is what Philip did. Again, just a guy. But he was gifted. And he went and he accomplished. One of the things that we have to take away from the character of Philip is the fact that he, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, went and accomplished these things not because he had a high position. He was not a prophet. He wasn't a priest. But he went and he did. What we see here in Ephesians is that it is the individuals in the church, it's the body of Christ who is to go and to be ministers. And I think one of the things that is sort of sad that has happened 
in Western culture is that we have made minister a profession instead of a calling. And I've heard from different people, we'll leave Bible teaching to the professionals. We'll leave evangelism to the professionals. And I don't know if anyone has read the book. It is more geared towards pastors, but a book by John Piper that is titled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And right there, that may be the best part of the book, just right there on the title, though, because you can take it with you and you pretty much get it. The rest is just talking about the fact that ministers are not professionals. Brothers, we are not professionals. Sisters, we are not professionals. And that's not the point. Normally, it's the person who is the lay person. It's the person who is working with someone else day in and day out who's able to evangelize. It's the person who interacts with a neighbor who's able to evangelize. Very rarely are you going to have the effectiveness from a quote-unquote professional as you would from someone who is with someone else all the time. And that is true. And so what we see in Ephesians is the discussion is it is the job of I guess who you would call professionals to equip everyone else to do the work of ministry. And that's what Philip embodies. He went. He was taught, most likely by the apostles, but he went himself to go and to accomplish these things. Last sort of thought here. Matthew chapter 11. Just going to go to a couple verses here. Jesus is talking. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I can't help but feel like who Jesus is talking about is everyone who's intended to hear Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. The least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist may have had more influence. We remember him. But the gifting of the Spirit, the life of the church, is to go and to do and to accomplish the intentions of our Lord and Savior. We're to take light where it's dark. We're to take healing to those who are sick. We're to take a message of eternal life to those who we know are destined for eternal darkness. That's us. Brothers and sisters, we are not professionals, but we do have a job. We do have a calling. It's not for others to do. It's for you to do. When you lose a job and the Lord by his grace gives you another, that's not just, oh, now I can work somewhere else and make money. That's a redeployment. Whatever you had before, you're moving on to somewhere else. Why were you stuck in line at that one place for so long? Maybe so you could be in line with someone that's in front of you or behind you. You're being deployed. Maybe it's not Samaria. Maybe it's Trader Joe's. 
Maybe it's not Africa. Everybody gets so scared. Well, if I submit to the Spirit, he's going to send me to Africa. Africa's a really cool place, by the way. Pretty inexpensive. I mean, we actually should think about it. I'm just saying. But everyone's scared they're going to be sent somewhere they don't want to go. And every day you're sent places that you don't even think about. You're being sent. <laughs> let's be like Philip. If we can learn one thing from him, let's follow where the Spirit leads us and take the gospel, even if we go by ourselves. That's our calling. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples that we see in Scripture. Obviously, the ultimate example is Jesus. And Father, thank you for him and his example. However, to see other men and women who you have gifted, filled with your spirit, to go and to do and to accomplish things that they would never have been able to do in their own power. Lord, I pray we look at them, we look at these different characters and acts. Lord, I pray that we're encouraged. We're encouraged to, to go and to step out to do those maybe difficult things in situations that are familiar. To speak truth. To be kind and patient and gentle. To show gospel giving. Giving without ever expecting anything in return. Lord, I pray that you would use us for these things. And Lord, I pray that our gatherings here on Sunday evening would be opportunities for us to share what you are calling us to do throughout the week. Experiences that we have where we can see that you are at work in us and in those around us with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with maybe family But Lord, I pray that you would use us to continue this story of the gospel, that we would have this time every week as a time to declare the victories, the difficulties, Lord, those those moments of recognition that we are sent on a mission. Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another to go and to do and to accomplish the things that you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us that we might be your servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.